The Buddha said that the source of all suffering is our craving. Thomas Hobbes, the great uh, smart philosopher from the 17th century, said that desire is what's behind all actions. And even if you, as you start going into last century, some of the success literature, you get people like Napoleon Hill who say that if you want to be successful, it all starts with red-hot desire. Desire, it seems to me, and, and all these things can be good and it can be bad. We're going to kind of be looking at that a bit today in a number of different ways. I know for me, I think back um, about when I was growing up, I was raised in an affluent family. Um, and the first three years of my high school, I was in a small Texas town where I think other people in the school would have said I was spoiled. I'm not going to lie about that, particularly after last week's sermon. But, um, but then my senior year, we moved. I had to move my senior year, and I moved to Houston, and I went to a private school that was very, very affluent. And um, I remember the senior year, as the people were, as it was winding up, all these people were getting new cars. They were getting just amazing cars, actually. This is the kind of place where there were suddenly new Porsches and new BMWs and all these kinds of things. And there was at least a moment or two where I was like, ooh, wow, that's nice. Be nice if I had that. I think that's one of these things. This is what we're going to be talking about today. This kind of desire that leads us into coveting is something I'm convinced that without much hesitation that every single person in this room is engaged in at some point of looking at something and saying, I wish I had that. That person what that person has. I want exactly what they have and, and longing for it in this way. Today, what I want to do we, is recognize that this desire at different levels is both good and, and can be bad. And we're going to kind of unpack that and look at that as we wind up the sermon series that we've been doing. So if you're just joining us today, it's, it's great. You're not missing out. I'll tell you how this works. But today is week 10 of a, the longest sermon series I've ever done. A 10 week sermon series where we've looked at the Ten Commandments every single week. And if you missed all those, they've been really fun. I encourage you to go find them on our media center on the website. But don't worry because they all kind of stand separately more or less. And so today we're going to focus in on this 10th commandment that we're not to covet. And I want to start as we, we start to look at it by actually reading it. And if you'll remember, some of today is going to be reviewed as we wind things up. But you'll remember that the Ten Commandments are, appear in two places in the Old Testament. We've, it's in Deuteronomy and it's also in Exodus. And I'm going to read from Exodus 20 where we find it there. And I'm going to read from the Message Translation as it talks about um, this last uh, of the commandments. And this is uh, how it's how it's translated there. It says, No lusting after your neighbor's house, or wife, or servant, or maid, or ox, or donkey. Don't set your heart on anything that is your neighbor's. That's where we're headed today. We're going to unpack that one. And as, again, as we look at these, the way we've done these Ten Commandments, the way if you look at them, the first four have all to do about our relationship with God. And then really five through 10 are about our relationship with one another, with our neighbor. And so it's real easy or understandable, I should say, to see how Jesus took those when he was asked to summarize the law. He, he kind of went to these two categories and said, love God with everything, with all that you are, and love your neighbor as yourself. And we're in that second part, the five through 10, really talking about how we love our neighbor as ourself. And this is kind of, in a sense, how we interact with our neighbor's possessions. Like, what, how do we, we view this? And today's a little bit different because when, even when you look at these ones that we've been doing, 
Most of these have been about actions, like don't do this where it's an action and they're action oriented. This one is really in your mind. When we talk about not coveting, they translated it here as lust, but we're talking about what's in our mind, our hearts, or what's going on in the internal life that we have. And that's kind of, so we need to really pay attention to how that aspect of it's going. We start to unpack this. I suppose the first question is, what exactly does it mean to covet? What is, what is going on with the language there and what are we doing with that? One definition says this, coveting is having an inordinate desire to possess what belongs to another, usually tangible things. Coveting is not just wanting something, but it's wanting something at the expense of another. The Hebrew word that's used uh, can really mean desire, but again, it means something of something fuller than that, something more than that here. One other uh, person says it's ungoverned and selfish desire that threatens the basic rights of others. So you're getting that idea that it has to do with not just desiring these things, but it's something somebody else has, and it really starts to creep in to say, I'm willing to do whatever to get it. I want, I want not just anything, I want their thing and what exactly what they have. Uh, one professor, Professor Ellison, says it this way, the commandment looks especially at the self, sorry, the selfishness and lovelessness involved. It's wanting more at the expense of others. And I think it's interesting when we start to look at it what, it, what it's not saying. So just kind of pausing for a second and noticing what it doesn't say. It's not saying that it's wrong to desire to have a spouse or it's, it's wrong in some way to desire to have more goods or more stuff or whatever. It's more about desiring what other people have trying to pull somebody out of their committed relationship so you can have it or the possessions they have. I want that possession that they have and not just that necessarily that you want more. And sometimes people will talk about how this varies from greed because we know how you know, we talk about the seven deadly sins. We want to start talking about greed, but greed is more of just, I want, I want, I want it. Uh, it's a, it's a addiction of, about these possessions and all these things that we, that we want. This is more narrow than that. This is saying, I want what you have. And I, and, and I'm tempted in a way where I may do whatever it takes to get what you have. You're committed to somebody. I don't care. I'm going to still going to flirt with you or do whatever. Like I want what you have. I'm going to go, I'm going to do it. I don't care what these other things are in that way. And it oftentimes does involve, I mean, one of the aspects of this obviously involves um, people that are in committed relationships, spouses of somebody else and seeing them and having this moment where you say, oh, I wish I could be with that person, even though they're already committed in this other relationship around vows and what it does that way. That's what's at the essence of it. It's this wrongful desire, inordinate desire for other people's things or, or relationships in a way where you don't care about them. And they're loveless that way. I want to do something that's a little bit dangerous. Um, I want to talk about maybe why this commandment exists. And I want to be upfront in saying that whenever we start to ask and try to speculate about why God did something, we're kind of already out on a little bit of a, of a of a weak limb, a thin, you know, piece of ice or whatever. I'm going to give that disclaimer and then I'm going to go to it anyway. So just hold that, just hold that. But I wonder if part of the reason that God gives this commandment is because he, he's concerned about the condition of our hearts. And this commandment is looking at the heart and the mind and, and wanting us to be in the right place. 
our hearts and our direction that way. And, and of course, God cares about those things. We get that Jesus back in Matthew six talks about how where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And we're reminded that God cares where your heart is. And certainly this commandment, as I said, is your mind, your heart is wrapped up in it that way. So maybe that's part of what's going on with this. Or, you know, maybe it has to do with the fact that it's difficult to love your neighbor if you're sitting around wishing all the time you had their stuff or their relationship or whatever it is that makes it difficult that way. I wonder when you go back to that classic example of King David, who has everything, really, and goes up to the rooftop and sees Bathsheba and thinks, no, I need one more thing. And he's wanting her. And people speculate on what happened after that, how that relationship went down. But what we know for sure is that he has her brought over to his palace and he's with her. And then, and then he, he's not going to be friends with her. That, I mean, with her husband at that point, right? He calls him in trying to cover himself, but ultimately sends him off back into war in a way that's giving him a death sentence. He, re he really murders him in that way, right? I think it's safe to say King David is not loving his neighbor at this point. So it keeps us from doing that as well. And I think a big piece of this too, and when I, this is what I first think of. This is the, I didn't list it first, but it's what I think of first. I think that this commandment is about trying to keep you from having your joy robbed from you. If you're a person that gets wrapped up in what other people have, you're going to lose your joy. You're not going to be fully in your relationship or you're not going to be fully enjoying the stuff that you have. And I'll say more about that in a minute, but we can get so wrapped up looking at other stuff thinking, why don't I have that? Why don't, why, how, oh, why don't, I'm the victim. Why don't I have what they have? How do I, you know, it's all about what they have. C.S. Lewis kind of wrote about this a little bit in one of his essays. This is what C.S. Lewis said. He talks about how God has provided a rich, beautiful world for people to live in. He's given them intelligence to show them how it can be used and conscience to show them how it ought to be used. He's, contr he's contrived that the things they need for their biological life, the food, drink, rest, sleep, exercise, should be positively delightful to them. And having done all this, he sees all his plans spoiled by the crookedness of the people themselves. All the things he's given them to be happy with, they turn into occasions for quarreling and jealousy and excess and hoarding and tomfoolery. Do we get so caught up in looking at what other people have that we lose the ability to have joy in the things that we have and how God has endowed us? And I think also it leads us down this path that like so many of these things, one leads to the other. As we said already with David, King David, he covets, he commits adultery, and then he lies, then he murders. You know, he, he just, it starts this whole chain of things going. And that's one of the other reasons. So this is one of those things that will trip you up and start that pattern of how things go down and where, and you know, where, it, where it's going to end that way. I think that's the, probably the, one of the other reason. I would pause here for just one second to say, well, is it all bad? And the only reason I'm going to pause here is because Paul quotes to this one. And if you remember this in Romans 7, Paul has this moment where he, he says that, um, actually, I'm very thankful for the law because the law has shown me what a sinner I am and my need, sort of my need for God. But he singles out this commandment as part of that. So I'm going to read it. In Romans 7, 7, he says, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. 
And clearly, God doesn't want us to do these things. And so I'd like to spend just the last part of the sermon maybe thinking about what are some things we can do to help avoid this sin and tripping up on this final of the Ten Commandments. And the first one of these things is, is we talked about this about a year and a half ago, and it's one of these things I think we could, we could talk about every Sunday. But if we focus on being a people of gratitude, if we learn to be a people who are thankful for all the things we have, not only will it give us joy and all these great benefits we've talked about in the past, but I think it will help us not be a people who are looking at our neighbors saying, I wish I had that. When you're focused on, I'm grateful for what I have, for the things God's given me. I could, you know, the accident, accident of latitude and longitude, I could have been in a very poor country. I could have been here. I could, you know, what are you start thinking about? But if you look at the things you have and you're celebrating the things you have and you're giving thanks to God for the things you have, it's a defense against sitting there and wondering about your neighbors and wishing I had the stuff that they have, whatever, whatever else is going on with that. St. Paul tells us in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5 that we should give thanks in all circumstances because it's the will of God in Christ Jesus. That's part of what we're meant to be. And he's not saying give thanks for everything. He's saying whatever's going on, there's something to be thankful for. Be a, a people of gratitude. Be a people that are about giving thanks to God for what's going on. And Paul himself models this, right? If you remember in uh, his letter to the Philippians, we, we think we know it was written in prison and he's, he doesn't know what's going to happen. He's potentially going to die even. And he's been treated poorly. He's thinking about all these things he has. And the Philippians are trying to take care of him. They've sent somebody. They're doing all these things. And he ultimately writes back to them saying, like whatever condition I'm in, like I've learned Wherever I am, I'm going to be content. I've learned to be happy where I am, content where I am. And that's the way this real verse, I'm going to read this passage in a second, but that's where this verse about I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. It doesn't mean you can get your volleyball team to win the Olympics. It means whether you have a bunch of stuff or don't have a bunch of stuff, if you've focused on how to be locked onto God this way, you're going to be content. That's what it means. I can do that or I can do this in God. Let me just read it. This is Philippians 4. He says, not that I'm referring to being in need, for I've learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I've learned the secret of being well-fed and of ongoing hung hungry, of having plenty and of being in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can be have it all, or I can have very little. I've learned how to be in that place and be content. And I think when we're satisfied that way, when we get to a place where we we're satisfied, we're happy, we're content, getting something else doesn't change us. We're not more happy because we got something more. We're already content. That's something we've learned how to do in Christ. We've had that, that place where we are. And I think along with that, the other thing that, that helps us is getting the right perspective. If we can get our mind in the right place, around possessions. And I think about this, you know, I've been a priest for 17 years. I've done a lot of funerals. No one ever takes all their stuff with them. In fact, on their deathbed, nobody cares about all their stuff. They care about their relationships. They care about God. They care about other stuff. They don't care about all their possessions. And it's a reminder to us about living, having a, a perspective on life that doesn't, doesn't ever make that the main thing or a big thing. 
And Timothy in the New Testament preaches that same thing. He preaches it. So I want to let Timothy preach for one second. He says, of course, there is great gain in godliness combined with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, so we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into the temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. If we can learn to live from a place of abundance, it changes how we live. And I'll say, many of y'all know I wear two hats in my business side of things. I meet people all the time that are in these two categories. There are people who've learned how to live from a place of abundance. They're the ones that want to, even though they may be in the same area you are, they're willing to help you. They're willing to mentor somebody. They're willing to do whatever because they know there's abundance. They live from a place of abundance. And then you meet people who function in a place of scarcity. And if you help somebody, it's taken away from you and all this. And who do you think has more joy and more spiritual connection, all this stuff? If you can get to that place of seeing the abundance, you live in a different way. Abundance and gratitude and putting things in perspective, you'll live a different life. And I think along with that, it makes it easier then to resist this, the whole temptation to covet what somebody else has. What if it is if you see your neighbor prosper in some way and you say, that is awesome. I'm so happy that my neighbor's prospering that way instead of saying, oh, what's he doing? How do I get that? I want what he has or she has or whatever it is. Well, this is the end of our journey on these Ten Commandments. And it's been fun. I think what's, what's fun to me about these, and I hope you've seen this over these last 10 weeks for those you've been on the full ride, is that these were written a long time ago. Moses on the Sinai Peninsula coming down, doing all that. But these are words that still apply to us today. They still speak to into our condition today. And I want to suggest strongly that these are words of love. They help us find wholeness for society, but they also help us to find wholeness as individuals as we lean into these things. It's part of why the Book of Common Prayer has the Decalogue and all these things. These are, these are core things about how we do. The final thing I want to do in this sermon, I'm going to end with this. I'm going to read the Ten Commandments. And we'll end with this, and then I'll say a prayer. Then, this is from the Exodus 20 version. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that's on earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the inequity of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son, or your daughter, your male, or your female servants, your livestock, or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, all that's in them, but rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. Honor your father and your mother, 
so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male or female slave or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you that you love us and that you call us on a journey to walk with you and to learn your rhythms of grace. We thank you that you've given us some guideposts, some, some places, some rails to keep us in the track. And we ask that by your grace and with your strength that you'd help us to walk in those ways, that we might be blessed and that we might be a blessing to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.